Welcome to Luxury On Air, where we explore the trends, innovations, and personalities defining and redefining the luxury industry. Welcome to Luxury On Air. My name is Karen Sadi, and I'm delighted to host you for this new episode of our podcast focusing on the digital perspective of the Swiss watch industry. Today, I'm pleased to have Tim Stracke, the co-CEO and co-founder of the luxury watch marketplace Corona24, join us to share his vision of the future of the Swiss watch industry. Corona24 is the world's leading marketplace for luxury watches and generates 1.5 billion euros in transaction volume per year. Founded in 2003, it combines the largest collection of new, pre-owned and vintage watches. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me, Karin. So Tim, maybe before we dive, deep dive into topics that we want to discuss today, can you first introduce yourself and tell us about how your passion for watches began? It actually came through mechanics. I was always uh, fascinated by, by fine mechanics. I spent a ton of time uh, with Lego Technics uh, when I was young and building uh, radio-controlled planes and uh, radio-controlled cars. Um, and then when the first time and for the first time I saw a watch, it wasn't expensive, it was not an expensive one. Um it was actually a um a swatch um with a glass floor. Uh and I could see the fine mechanics that fascinated me, having this beautiful mechanic on a wrist. And then later on, um I I learned about the brands and the beauty um and the and then and then the status um, of of certain brands and uh, combining both my interest in technology and mechanics and also the um, the beauty of brands um, that brought it together and I think I brought my real watch which was an IWC um, Flieger um, Uhr um, when I was around twenty five I think and then it really started. Uh, the, the, the collection of uh, of real watches started. We can maybe then deep dive into how many watches you own, but at, at an IWC at age of 25 is already not bad. Huh? <laughs> I didn't pay it myself, to be honest. Uh, it was uh, it was a gift by my parents, uh, but I had I, I could pick it by myself. So. But I did watch, watch collections of swatches as well when I was young. It's just so fun. Huh? And it was in the 80s. It was absolutely the place to be. Um, so I, I feel, I mean, that you're a born entrepreneur. Huh? I think you founded your first company at the age of 24. You have a passion for mechanics, as you mentioned, and watches. And luxury and marketplaces are one of your passions as well. Is Chrono24 like the, the ideal playground for you? And, and, and when you took it over in 2010, it was just like the dream coming through? It is, it is exactly that. So it, uh, it brings really... Um, three of my my passions together. One one is entrepreneurship. I come from an entrepreneurial family, and both of my parents come from entrepreneurial families. So, so this was deeply rooted in my in my genes uh, that I wanted to become an entrepreneur. Um, and, and even my my oldest son, he's twelve, uh, seems to also be interested uh, in uh, being an entrepreneur. And then we discussed this, the passion for watches. Um, but also uh, when I realized the concept of marketplaces, that was also something that really fascinated me. And, and now being in a situation where um, I have all three, entrepreneurship, watches, and the marketplace business is is feels like a playground. It doesn't feel like a job. So um, when it's Sunday evening, I'm looking forward to Monday morning, um, which is a which is a nice, nice feeling. Um, and, and I think probably a lot of people do not have that. Um, but I also have to say that my first entrepreneurial adventure um, was a great learning experience, but financially a big failure. Um, and the second one um, was also not as successful as I wanted it to be. Um, it, it wasn't a failure, but um, the financial outcome in the end when I sold the business for me was, was more... Um, car changing and not life changing and then me and my co-founders decided well maybe maybe we should not aim for creating a huge business and making a lot of money let's just create a fantastic company that is just first of all a lot of fun to work at and uh, a lot of cool and fun people to work with and during our first two 
entrepreneurial adventures. We knew a lot of cool people, a lot of great people, uh, and, and we could bring them together and we promised them to not be more than 15 people uh, in the long term. So that's definitely one of the promises we did not keep. Um, but the origination of Chrono24 was really to creating uh, a great company with great people um, and, uh, and having an impact in, a, in an industry that we thought could be super interesting for us in the long term and not just being there for making money. Because, I mean, you must have been at the right place at the right time. Uh, because um, looking at uh, the success that you have now, you valued over a billion of euros. Um, did the watch industry need such a marketplace or was it just luck and talent? Um, there's always a lot of luck involved when 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 you create a successful company. Um, that's, that, that is for sure. You have to be at the right time um, uh, uh, in the in the right context um but there's a saying that luck meets the prepared um so if i hadn't been prepared and i if i hadn't had the the passion in watches and my experience in marketplaces both of my other companies were also marketplace businesses maybe then it would not have worked out um looking back i've spent hours and hours just lying on the sofa and searching for watches on another side on a pretty colorful auction site and i was never really satisfied with my experience um but i i didn't know that there was anything else uh and I, but i always had the feeling well this can be done a lot better and then when when my first two um, entrepreneurial adventures were history uh, and i was thinking okay what could be next how do i want to spend my uh, my life now uh, i thought maybe this is something that needs to be changed and interestingly I mean, I, I started to invest in, uh, in other companies and I, I told a lot of probably three or four teams that pitched business ideas to me. And I wasn't convinced by the, in case I wasn't convinced by the, by the idea, but like the team, I told them, well, why don't you go into luxury watches? It's just nobody really does it. And I think there were three or four teams that I said, hey, that, that's, that's what you should do. And none of them jumped on that train and then was like, yeah, maybe I should do it myself. And then, uh, then I did, and I said, "Okay, let's 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 create a much 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 better user experience here." And now you are the reference huh? in 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 the marketplace, and <clears throat> Chrono Twenty Four is often the first source that everybody's using when they're looking for a watch or trying to get a price tag. So it's really universally spread. Um, so maybe if you speak speak universally spread global, let's let's maybe look at the more global watch markets. Um, we've seen um, in, in 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 the numbers that uh, the US has become the single biggest watch market in the last two years. Uh, historically, this this number one position was held by China, and even that, before that, even by Hong Kong. Um, is the US the next Eldorado? I mean, especially in the e-commerce space, which has helped the market get getting so big. It certainly is right now, and there are no signs that this will that this will stop. Um, for us, it's also our biggest market on both sides. It's uh, on the buy side and on the sell side. The U.S. is the clear number one. Um, but on our end, uh, the U.S. is uh, one of the very few markets besides China um, where we are not the local market leader. So Crown24 is the, is the, the market leader in almost every single country, mm -hmm. uh, no matter which country you look at, uh, I said, with the exception of, uh, of, of China. Um, and in the, in the U.S., it's the same thing, but we are, we're seeing very nice growth rates in the U.S. and we're expecting to also become the number one in a, in a few years from now. Um, it was always interesting in the past that in the U.S., um, we, The, our, our dealers, also our sellers, were seem to be the most advanced. So when we discussed certain strategies and concepts, uh, it always seemed that the U.S. dealers would uh, uh, get it the best and understand it the best, and all the questions they would ask. So, so they are definitely, when it comes to e-commerce, the the most experienced um, sellers and really know how to how to sell online. And is the e-commerce, I mean, we have seen that the rise of e-commerce has helped the U.S. market grow exponentially you know, because of the the large, the, the size of the, of the territory, not so easy to find your preferred retailer close to you. Is the, Do you think the e-commerce penetration highest in the U.S. as well? It's, it's, it's a lot higher in China. 
Um, China is, is 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 here definitely leading leading the game, but it is also very very strong in, in the U.S. And there's another impact. I mean, U.S. is strong in, in a few other luxury um, segments as well. Um, but especially in watches, there's one other thing that that could be a driver, and uh, I'm sure that's a question you'll you'll ask later because I get that in every second interview. Um, what is the impact of the smartwatch? What is the impact of the of the Apple Watch? Um, when we got our first major funding, um, which actually also was a U.S. investor in 2015, um, it was a big issue because at that time, the Apple Watch just came out and there was a big discussion. Um, will the Apple Watch um, replace the luxury watch? And even a few hedge funds have contacted me and wanted to have access to our data because they placed huge bets against Swatch Group and Richemont uh, thinking, well, Apple will um, will take that lunch in the future, um, but history obviously um, taught us different. Um, even though the smartwatch has been quite a success now, a luxury watch is uh, even more so. Uh, and there was a lot of discussion: is a smartwatch um, the uh, is it paving the way for um, luxury watch purchases? Uh, and so to serve the entropies, um, or um, is it replacing the luxury watch? And in the US, in the last six, seven years, the number of people wearing a wristwatch, any kind of wristwatch, um, has grown. Um, I think the latest study I've seen, it was like from 44% to 55% of people wearing something on their wrist, um, mainly driven by the smartwatch. And that probably paved the way for a lot of people now um, buying a luxury watch. So the watch industry prefers people having a luxury watch, uh, having a smartwatch versus having an empty wrist. And since the smartwatch has a very high penetration in the US, that probably was also a driver for the success that we're now seeing uh, 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 in the luxury watch market in the US. No, I can only agree. I mean, uh, we've mentioned this in our Swiss watch industry study where we, we you can see that in the last, uh, what, 20 years, uh, the volume halved of the Swiss watch industry, but uh, the price um, went from uh, 300 average to 1,500 average, meaning less half less volumes, but five times higher average price. Of course, this, these statistics do not comprise the Apple Watch, uh, which is on a, on a lot of wrists. Um, but it's true, Apple Watch as well is more sports uh, health um, than than lifestyle and um, luxury jewelry. The, the first one was targeting uh, the luxury um, segment. I mean, Apple even hired um, executives from the luxury uh, industry. Uh, I mean, probably know that the, the Burberry CEO moved over to Apple. Um, but then I think it took just a year or two until they learned that health and sports is probably a much better segment for the Apple Watch than luxury. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I can only I can only agree. But it's 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 good to see that so many people are wearing now something on their wrist and can be converted to potentially luxury watch wearers. Um, so yeah, the US being promising, you mentioned China having a high uh, e-commerce penetration. Hong Kong has been suffering. I mean, I mentioned before China, it was Hong Kong number one, number one export market for uh, for watches. Um, I mean, you have offices as well in Hong Kong, as well as in Tokyo. What do you think? Is, is Hong Kong, will Hong Kong ever regain its position or is it is it the past for the Swiss watch industry? I mean, first of all, we have to look at what, what made Hong Kong so strong. And it was mainly um, Chinese customers that made um, Hong Kong so successful. So... Um, when you look five years ago, um, around 70% of Chinese luxury purchases, and this is not only watches, happened outside of China, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and by the way, also a lot of um, in, uh, in Switzerland. Um, so when you look at the, um, uh, so when, when I talked to some of the top European retail outlets by the big European uh, luxury watch retail brands, I remember one one person telling me that in 2013, 14, um, they did 90% of sales to Chinese customers. And then um, there were a lot of changes in regulation. Um, uh, tariffs and duties got a lot higher or were a lot better um, implemented and executed. Um, there were a lot less purchases happening outside of China. 
and also outside uh, and lots lot less purchases in Hong Kong happening by Chinese uh, individuals. And now even that Corona kicked in, um, a lot of purchasing volume has been repatriated uh, into China. Um, so I think for the watch industry, it was just a shifting demand from one location to another. Mm-hmm. Looking at Hong Kong itself, obviously, they lost a lot. Um, we did not open our office in Hong Kong for the local market. We, like 2015, opened our office in Hong Kong to cater to the entire Asian Pacific market. So even our Australian customers, our Japanese customers um, have been supported from Hong Kong. And given the strength of the Japanese market on on Chrono24, we have most recently last year also decided um, to open an office in Tokyo. And now we're shifting um, a lot more um, customer support employees um, there. Hong, uh, Japan has evolved to now the third biggest selling market on Chrono24 over the last few years. Wow. Okay. I didn't know. And it, uh, you have more data in terms of um, categories, more luxury watches, more entry level. What is what is the Japanese consumer focusing on? Um, I have to say that the Japanese, like on, on the buy side, so the Japanese customer... Um, is um, we're not as strong on the buy side in Japan as we are on the sell side. So I have to admit that this is a question I'm, uh, I have to dig a little bit deeper in. Um, the sad news is a little bit that when you when you look globally, that the top 10 preference of brands and probably even the top 10 preference of watch models is almost always uh, everywhere the same, no matter whether you go to Chile, South Africa, the US, or uh, or Japan, um, and probably watches is one of the most global consumer categories out there. I wouldn't know a single item that I would consider purchasing, like consumer item that I would consider purchasing in Australia or, or Tokyo or Seattle. Um, but the watch is one of them. I mean, it's the pieces are everywhere the same, the taste is everywhere the same or very similar. The reference ID clearly defines um, what product I get. And, and this is also the reason why for a lot of people it's super interesting to buy um, from Japan, especially the, the little bit weakening Japanese yen versus the super strong US dollar makes it very interesting and attractive for um, US buyers to buy from Japan. And, and when I was there most recently and, and talked to a few dealers in, uh, in Tokyo, I was super impressed by the quality um, of Japanese pre-owned watches. It's probably second to none. Um, I mean, also learning a little bit about the Japanese culture, how they treat things and um, how careful and um, they are with, with, with the things. It's just an amazing quality. Mm. And right now, uh, also very good prices. So, and thank you for that insight. It's very interesting. Um, so we, we spoke about the Japanese consumer. Let's maybe look more broadly on who are your consumers and customers and consumers at Chrono24. Is there any different um, differences between the consumer segments? Who is buying the new watches, the pre-owned, the vintage? What can you tell us about your your consumers? It is unfortunately very very male. Um, no no surprise here. Uh, I'm not surprised. I can tell you. <laughs> uh, probably a little bit more male than it is compared to the offline market. So so we think that men are. Uh, Showing a little, having a little bit of different purchasing patterns um, that that make them a little bit more open to buy online, and they probably value the offline purchasing purchasing experience a little bit less. Um, I'm openly speaking one of them. I mean, I try it from time to time, and when I go to a retail store, I don't think it's such a great experience. I mean, it's. Uh, it feels luxury. It maybe it should feel luxury, but I I don't think it's relaxed. I don't think it's uh, 2023 um, luxury that you feel in the stores. It sometimes feels like more like 1990 uh, kind of luxury where yes, you get a free glass of champagne or a free espresso. Um, but when you really want to talk watches, um, a lot of salespeople. Um, don't really have that experience and uh, talking about watches. Um, 
they try to sell me something and I, I don't like the feeling of that, that pressure that some, somebody tries to sell me something. Um, I also don't like this feeling of entering a door where the security person is opening the door. Um, and when you compare this to Crown 24, when I'm in the security, uh, door, um, at a retail store, uh, and, and waiting to be seated, uh, in the time I, I can on Chrono 24 already, um, look at 20, 30 different pieces from all around the world. And I think that's, that is luxury to me, uh, even though I might not get a free espresso. Um, and I don't like this pressure that is sometimes, um, uh, put on people. Um, I have to say that some, some brands are getting better. Um, than, than, than others. But coming back to your question, it is very male. It also spreads around a quite big, um, uh, target group from an, from an age perspective. So the largest group is 18 to 34 years old, but it also goes to up to 65 years old on, on Chrono 24. And even, even that, I think 8, 8% of our purchases are older than 65 years. Um, as I said, it's unfortunately uh, less female uh, than we than we wanted to. But interesting, the yes, for example, um, the female ratio um, is is one of the highest on our platform. So in the US, we have a lot of um, probably not a lot of, but more than in other countries, uh, female uh, purchasers. Interesting. So a, a lot to unpack here. Let's let's start from from your shopping experience in a store. Um, some some brands are now starting to have more digital experiences where you can play around as well and learn more about the brands. Uh, you said you, you don't like the pressure. Do you feel that this living experience, rather than being served espresso and champagne, but having a, a digital interaction, is changing something, or is everything going back to the the expertise of of the of the sellers and the sales personnel? I think it's more and more um, about storytelling is uh, is important, and these stories. Um, are just told very well on the internet, not only on on, on Chrono 24. I mean, the most iconic story around the watch uh, is probably the one from the Omega Speedmaster that has been on the moon. Uh, um, and this is just fast, fantastic. And to to buy a watch um, that that has been worn on the moon. Um, it's just a story that is, uh, yeah, people couldn't even think about it. I mean, it just, it just happened. It wasn't even, I mean, Omega didn't even pay for it, right? It was, uh, NASA made the quality checks and just thought, well, this is the perfect watch that our astronauts should wear when they, when they walk on the moon. Um, and then when, when later, um, I think it was Saturn 13, um, had the failures and they used the, uh, the Speedmaster to, um, complete the navigation to bringing the people safely back to Earth. That's an amazing story. And, and a lot of watches have these stories. And I think here the internet, um, does a fantastic job to, um, to tell the stories. Um, and another thing also today is that in watches you just mentioned it are getting more and more expensive. Um, so the, the investment perspective of a watch is all, all, almost always there, right? I mean, pe people don't buy watches just um, for an investment, or very few people do. And um, so when we did surveys, a very, very small number of people said we purely buy for an investment. And people people buy because they like the brand, they like the mechanics. Um, but I think uh, to preserve value always plays a very important role. Um, and here, I think also the internet does a much better job in uh, telling you, well, what was the price a year ago? You, you look at charts. Before uh, so you can just with a simple photo, um, um, take a, um, with a simple click on your app, take a photo of your watch um, and, and put the watch in a personal watch collection. And then you can track the value of your collection on a daily basis. And I think this is uh, very important for people today. Uh, when they're spending so much on 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 a watch, um, they want to see um, how does the value develop, uh, and maybe this is also sometimes giving you a justification to your significant other um, to maybe spend a little bit too much money on a certain category. Um, I mean, watches can be very very expensive, but uh, if they keep the value, uh, might even be the better investment um, than a car that usually loses value. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I think we'll talk a bit uh, more about uh, the investment and maybe the speculation aspect as well that we see. 
And maybe going going back as well to to the shop experience that you mentioned. Um, you said that well, you can scroll and on, on your platform and see uh, 20 watches while waiting for the shop assistant to come and get you at the door. Um, the reason of a lot of buyers going to the shop is because first of all they're scared about uh, authenticity, and they're scared about uh, sending money of a certain value uh, over internet. Um, how do you tackle these challenges? I mean, maybe one big difference in the, in the latest years, especially, is when when you go to a store, you don't find watches anymore. Yes. <laughs> at least at least the You're ones right. that you want to see. And I, I do it again and again. And when I pass the Rolex store, I usually always go in and ask them, so do you have any stock? And uh, the answer is always, like everywhere in the world, we're very sorry um, that we don't have stock right now. And, um, and I usually ask them, so what are you doing here day, day in, day out? Well, we're... Um, We're uh, helping our our long-term trusted customers. Um, and so I think this is certainly another reason why a lot of people are coming to us now because we have everything. Um, and you might have to pay a premium to a certain watch, um, but you don't have to wait six, seven years um, and, and get it the very next day. So coming back to your question, so why, uh, so, so, so how, how do we ensure or how, how do other marketplaces ensure? Um, well, What, what we do is we um, we um, check every every dealer before we let them on our platform. We have around 3,500 dealers, uh, and we make a lot of reference checks, check the papers, and, and make sure that that the dealers um, are legit legitimate um, uh, watch dealers. And then when you buy a watch, you don't wire the money to the dealer; you wire the money to us. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a banking partner, and the money is. Um, uh, Uh, safeguarded um, in, a, in a separate account and then the watch is being sent to you and only um, when you have the watch on your wrist and you decide you want to keep it um, the, the money is being released to the original seller and even when you don't like the watch and very few um, jewelers for example offer you a, a free return. Yeah? You, you, you might be able to return the watch, but usually you don't get your money back. You just get a certificate, and a, um, a money certificate. Um, and luckily, it does not happen a lot. So the, the return ratio on Chrono24 is around 5%. Mm. And in most cases, and this is this is almost nothing when you compare this to fashion. Yeah, so it's, it's one-tenth of the fashion return now. Yeah. Um, and... Um, It's uh, and the main reason is that the the watch is maybe not as described. A lot of people think once the watch is on a wrist that it uh, seems a little bit smaller than they expected it to be. Um, and only in very rare cases um, there's an incident of um, um, of non-authenticity. Um, and then obviously we we have safeguarded the money, and then we wire the money back to you, and uh, we we are the ones in charge to make sure that. Uh, That, that you're being treated uh, fair and well. So, I mean, I, I when I scroll into Chrono 24, there's watches that are worth more than uh, 100,000 US dollars. There is even watches that are enough with $900,000 or even over a million. Are these really selling on an online marketplace? Yes, they are. They, they're definitely selling. Um, not in the numbers um, as a three uh, or 5,000 euro watch, obviously. Um, and um, it might be the case that people still want to have a look at the watch. If they're pay paying so much, they probably either know the watch mm. and have seen it uh, somewhere else and, and already had that uh, on their wrist, or um, they might take the chance and, 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 and do the little travel and, and have a look at the watch. But interestingly, and this is very counterintuitive, when we talk to dealers, um, selling a 3,500 euro pre-owned Omega, for example, um, compared to selling a 80,000 euro Patek Philippe. Um, so what we hear from a lot of our dealers is that for this cheaper watch, there are a lot more questions on authenticity, trust, um, and it's a lot more stressful to sell that watch because it's quite likely It is the very first purchase. Um, it is quite likely that the person is spending a one or two month or three month salary on a single watch, which is a lot of money. Mm. 
-hmm. when you compare it. The person that spends $100,000 on a watch, it's, it's rarely the first watch. Um, it is probably a rather insignificant part of the net worth of that person. That person probably has a net worth where it doesn't even matter. Um, so what we hear from dealers that these kind of purchases are often, um, yeah, I'm wiring you the money. Um, I'll be in New York anyway in the next few months and uh, I'll pick it up or a friend is coming by and, and then picking it up. Um, so the, the requirements for trust and safety are a lot higher in this uh, lower price segment, interestingly. That is very interesting, yeah. But so is are your clients more passionate um, collectioners? I mean, is there a lot of repeat business? How, do you do? Can you segment the, your clients between the speculator buying once, trying to make easy money, and the one that is really looking for a particular model because he's in love with that model? Obviously, there's everything um, uh, on our platform, and we have a very detailed analysis of customer segments. Um, I think it's around every second watch is purchased from a person that has done a purchase on Chrono 24 before. So we have a very, very loyal customer group. And also when you look at our purchasing cohorts um, over long term, long period of time, we have very loyal uh, cohorts. Um, but every second watch is, has been purchased from a person uh, that, is, that is new to us. Uh, that does not necessarily mean that the person is purchasing his or her first watch. They often have purchased before um, in other channels. Um, and then we do recognize that or understand that, that maybe some people want to do their first purchase uh, in a store. I mean, buying online definitely needs a little bit more trust. Also buying a pre-owned watch and two-thirds of our transaction volume is generated from pre-owned watches also needs a little bit more trust. Um, and then you're buying from uh, from a huge number um, different options of dealers that you can buy on the so so this is why trust is very important and this is also why trust is our key element uh, that we want to provide and, and this is also why we decided we um, we will safeguard every single amount of money that's being paid first of all in a secure bank account and then the watch is being shipped and then you can decide whether you want to keep it or or, or not mm -hmm. Okay. So interestingly, I mean, you mentioned that two-thirds of your business is pre-owned watches. Um, I mean, we as well in our study have uh, made a prediction that in 2030, half of the watch markets, uh, I mean, the, the pre-owned watch market will be bigger than half of the primary markets, really growing, outgrowing on the primary market more and more in growth rates. Um, is this, I mean, do you see the same perspective for the pre-owned market? Is it as well the marketplaces and the and the auction houses and the digitalization that has helped the, the pre-owned market to grow? I mean, definitely. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, you, you can do the math by looking at post-purchases or post-purchasing volumes over the last 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, the numbers are public, um, how many watches have been purchased in the last 30 years. And then you can just do the math and assuming an average holding period of a watch. Um, so there are assumptions that in 10 years from now, um, so, I mean, you mentioned 2030, so... 2023, 2033, um, there are assumptions that the market could even be on, e on an equal level with the primary market. Um, uh, whether it, it is now 50% of the primary market or even close to 100% of the primary market, I think everybody in the, in the industry agrees mm. that um, there will be um, a very um, strong growth over the next years to come. And yeah, I mean, probably also discussed this. There are also new market entrants like Rolex coming into the CPO segment. I mean, and that tells enough that there is a huge potential uh, and also the brands definitely want to be part of it. Yeah, because I mean, you refer to Rolex announcing that they will now certify uh, their own models and, and then these are being allowed to, to be sold through their authorized retailers so they <clears throat> the brands obviously want to take or try to take part of this pre-owned markets uh, they might even sell uh, via their own uh, channels with authorized resellers do you see a threat there 
and it's it's hard to predict what the what the market volume volume uh, will be from from Rolexes and probably a few other brands that might follow suit. Um, but we definitely also see an opportunity. I think the biggest threat for us is people um, that don't dare to buy a pre-owned watch and rather wait for seven years, <laughs> depending on the on the model that you want to buy, uh, and also people that have something at home and don't want to bring it back into the market. So we appreciate everybody that helps to build trust to first-time buyers. Mm -hmm. And if a certain first-time buyer prefers to buy um, at an authorized dealer a pre-owned watch uh, and is willing to pay maybe 15 to 25% premium for that, um, then that's fine for us. I think it's better um, to convince that person with this massive level of trust that they are bringing, but also with a massive uh, um, premium on price. And then maybe the next watches, the person decides, well, may maybe it's uh, it's the more efficient deal to buy on Corona 24. And also second, we think that um, a lot of uh, inventory will now come back into circulation. And everybody that helps to bring more watches into circulation is definitely uh, a friend and somebody that also in the long term supports right. our business. Uh, and we will also expect that these uh, Rolex certified watches will in the long term also be um, on our market. I mean, we have a lot of Rolex watches that have a, a new watch certificate. Uh, and then maybe a few watches now have a second certificate. Um, the, um, that, that, that certainly helps. Um, but um, will people then in the long term always prefer to pay that premium? My gut feeling is that only a small number of people um, will, will pay that premium. And especially when you look at some of our dealers, um, they, they, they have so much experience um, and I don't necessarily need a, uh, another person looking, looking at the watch. I mean, in this context, Bucherer is doing the certification. And for me, I have so much trust in Bucherer um, that I wouldn't need a second person looking into it. And then Bucherer is sending the watch to Rolex. And then a Rolex uh, watchmaker is opening the watch and does a second check and says, well, um, I can confirm what Bucherer said. Uh, and to me, I wouldn't want to, I, I personally do, do not need a 15 to 25% premium for a second person to make an authentication. Um, so I think this is this is um, how, how I would, uh, would would see it in the in the long term. But it'll be definitely interesting uh, to see how user behavior will shift um, and who else will will join this massive market opportunity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we have been and, and thanks for the insights. I mean, we've been talking about Rolex. We've been talking about uh, Patek Philippe. We have have not yet mentioned uh, Audemars Piguet and uh, Royal Oak, which is the big three. Huh? We have seen that, especially these models, uh, the brands and their um, um, very important uh, models have been the prices have been spiking. Huh? It was if you look at the last three years in, in the indexes, it's more than fifty percent rise. Nevertheless, uh, we have seen that in the last year and the last month there is a reduction of like twenty-five to thirty-five percent. Um, do you think that the, the prices will normalize? I mean, there's such a focus on on a limited amount of brands and models, and that the speculative market will stabilize somehow. Or what is your view on that? I mean, we're seeing on our platform, we're, we're seeing rather stable prices over the last weeks, two months. So uh, it's always hard to predict when the bottom has been reached. Um, my personal gut feeling is that, and also when I look at our data, so demand has always been quite stable over the last few years for these iconic brands. And I mean, we're especially looking at some of the iconic models, the Nautilus, the, the, the Royal Oak, you just mentioned or the 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 daytona and when we looked at the most current models um uh from from those three brands demand has been quite stable but supply tripled at the beginning of last year so between january and june supply and it's it was a very similar pattern for all three tripled and everybody that remembers uh, Economics 101, uh, when demand is stable and supply triples, that puts a lot of pressure on price. And so it was obvious that then prices would need to go down. And that's what happened um, starting um, early, early April. 
And I think it really peaked and, and probably drove another few weeks um, through the massive media attention around watches and warmers last year. So now watch prices are coming down, demand is stable. We're seeing now in the last few weeks um, a little bit of weaker uh, level of supply for these brands. So that could be a first indication that there's less supply and uh, a stable demand. My personal gut feeling, um, but if I really had the had the hard truth on that, um, I wouldn't be on this podcast. I would sell newsletters for a lot of money with that information. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad to have you on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my personal gut feeling is that um, maybe in April, maybe even during Watches and Wonders, where we expect a lot of media attention, um, that that could be a turning point where um, prices will stabilize or even go up. We hear from a lot of dealers. I'm having a lunch meeting later today with another one of our dealers um, that a lot of people are um, queuing up right now and in the in the waiting line, so to say, for the situation when the prices have stabilized. Uh, and, and, and we have seen this also a lot in the past when there was a spike, be it an up or down versus our linear growth that usually... Um, there has been a counter reaction um, in the quarter um, afterwards. So now it has been a few quarters with a lower demand among these watches, but there still is purchasing power. People are just waiting. And as soon as there's significant proof that the bottom line has been um, ha has been reached, I, I think the waiting line is quite long of people who, who would then jump in. And they then would probably also drive prices up again. I don't expect these crazy prices that we saw um, a year ago again anytime soon. Um, but I definitely do not expect um, full shelves and retail stores again uh, for, yes. from these three brands. And you might want to add Richard Mills. It could even be a fourth one. Um, and if Peugeot, then we're at the big five. Huh? Yeah, could be. Um, they're definitely also now in, the, in in that category. Yeah, shifting market. We've, we've spoken a lot about uh, the big three, big four, big five. Let's maybe look more in the category less than 500 Swiss francs or euros um, and maybe the entry-level category. You have We have spoken a bit about the Apple Watch and the, the impact it had in 2015 as it, it launched. Um, what about um, the, the entry-level category? You mentioned recently that Grand Psycho had a 30% market share, which I think is a quite interesting insight. And of course, last year, the Big Bang, the launch of the Moonswatch. What is your take on that? It was not Grand Cycle. It was also Cycle in general um, that has quite a market share. And, and when you when you talk market shares in Chrono 24, it always depends on, on how you look at it. Is it. Do you look at transaction value? And here, a Cycle doesn't really play a relevant role. Here, we're talking about Rolex, Patek Philippe, Automobile, Omega, Breitling. These are the brands that really... Uh, create uh, the the most part of our uh, GMB. Um, when you just look at number of sales, yes, then then brands like Psycho um, are um, are strong. I mean, they are also going into into a little bit higher segments. Smooth Moonswatch was a was a very interesting um, experience. I have to say, when when I first heard about it, I think it was a it came out on Saturday. I think I heard about it on Thursday evening. I my first thought was. It's not April 1st. What's <laughs> happening here? Uh, is that a, a little bit an early um, April Fool's joke? Um, but then we looked at our data probably on a daily basis. And uh, it was really interesting to see that, uh, first of all, prices jumped. I think the, the highest transactions were even at around 4,000 euro, like a very, very short number. And I think then it stabilized a little bit between 1500 and, 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 and 2000 for, for the moon swatch. And this retails, uh, everybody that doesn't know it, it, it retails for 250. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, prices then have come down to 500 uh, after a few months and have been stable for a while. And now they're, they're close to retail. I mean, still a little bit above retail. Um, but the interesting question is, uh, what happened to the original Speedmaster? So to the real thing. And here, um, on, on that very day um, and a week after, demand for the Speedmaster Professional um, increased significantly uh, and also prices slightly 
uh, went up for a few weeks and then stabilized um, on that uh, on that new level. That is the average Speedmaster on uh, Prono Twenty Four. So here, I think it's uh, it's fair to say that that really um, helped. Brilliant launch. Um, mm. I mean, the probably the long term strategy is here. So, what does the the Speedmaster do for the for the millennial target group um, for the Gen Zs? Um, when they reach an age where they can, when they have the financial um, capabilities to buy a real watch, will they remember um, that it was a, a a good purchase? And and is that brand name and the model name now engraved in their in their brains? Probably yes. Um, will Swatch do it again? Probably yes. I mean, we heard rumors that there is uh, that there are other models um, uh, in the making. Um, my gut feeling is if they do it too often, um, they would probably in the long term rather hurt the other brands than helping them. It was definitely, I think, a help here since it was new. It was crazy. There was a lot to talk about. Um, if we now see once a year, um, and it definitely helped the Swatch brand. I mean, that's for sure. Um, well, it helped bringing consumers back into the store. I mean, this uh, the Moon Swatch is still not sold online in the primary market, which is quite amazing to see queues in front of a Swatch store. Correct. Um, sorry. Um, the, the, um, that, that is, that, that, that's definitely the case. But the big question is the impact on the Omega mm-hmm. brand. I mean, when you compare the value of the Swatch brand to the Omega brand, I think Omega is much, much, much more valuable than, than the Swatch business. Um, I mean, we all know that Hayek really has a thing for Swatch. And, and maybe his passion is even a little bit closer to Swatch than, uh, than to Omega. Um, my gut feeling is they, they probably do it again. If they do it too often, it probably will start hurting the big brands. Yeah, I think that's a, an interesting and, and quite a sensible analysis of, of the situation. Um, maybe to, to last question, um, more broadly, what is your outlook for the Swiss watch industry? I mean, it has been disrupted, it has been attacked. Uh, um, there, there was the quartz watches, there were the Apple watches. Um, now it is online. I mean, where is the Swiss watch industry heading and, and how optimistic or how pessimistic are you about the, the outlook? I'm probably super biased here. <laughs> so That's I'm, why you're asking probably, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm obviously super, super optimistic when I look in the in the in the long term. I'm probably a lot more optimistic even when I look five or ten years in the future than this year. This year we expect still some volatility. I mean, there was a lot of market disruptions in the past. There was Corona. Um, there was this um, massive inflation. And there was a big deflation um, among the top brands. There was a lot of media attention. I think it attracted a lot of new customers into this um, category. Maybe a lot of customers that haven't even purchased yet. But you won't believe how often I now, I mean, every single party I go to, um, I'll be asked about watches. And this was not the case three years ago. So you're very so, a popular party guest now. <laughs> um not 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 sure about that uh but when i'm at a party i'm definitely um uh, uh always surrounded by people that uh that want to hear the the final answer on what will prices do uh and um and i think this is not only in germany the case i'm my gut feeling is this is a worldwide phenomenon and i think this is very very stable and also, when you look at luxury, when you look at the last 20, 30 years, luxury is a very, very stable category. I mean, the richest man in the world um, is not a tech guy. Um, it's, a, it's a luxury guy. And I think that tells a lot. Um, and the need to differentiate uh, yourself um, and, and show some status, I think, is deeply, deeply rooted in uh, in, in people's mind um and i don't expect that this will change and there are not that many things that you can use to really show off your your success and your your financial stability a car is not really i mean it used to be the status element here in germany over the long period of time but um 
I don't think that works anymore. I mean, cars are more and more uh, something you use, mm -hmm. um, but we all know, I mean, they are polluting the environment, uh, maybe a little bit less so an electric car. Um, and, um, and I think a lot of people also don't want to show off so loud anymore. Um, and a watch is a very silent way to, to give signals. Um, you, you can, you can pick a little bit louder brand that, that is more obvious, uh, or you can, you can choose a, a brand that maybe a lot of people just don't know. Um, and a lot of people probably can't even show, see the difference when, when you wear, um, a specific, let's say a Langon Zöhner or Patek Philippe. The insiders know, but maybe some other people can't even tell whether this is a $90,000 watch or a $500 watch. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also something uh, that a lot of people appreciate, that you're being recognized among a certain group. Um, a fellow Patek Philippe um, owner will recognize it right away, and you right away have a connection. Um, and a lot of other people won't even recognize it. Uh, so I think it's a very discreet and silent way, mm -hmm. but still works uh, among your peers um, uh, to, to show your status. And so... Um, and also the stability of value is something that also plays probably a certain role here. Um, yes, watches are super expensive and it's a lot of money for just knowing the time. But if you consider the stability of value, um, they don't cost anything. They'll even help you to make some money. And I think this also helps that, that you have a way of, um, having status. Um, uh, and then also the connection to the longevity. I mean, it's unbelievable how long watches live they probably outlive you and me and uh, our house our car probably everything that i own will be outlived by my watch collection and that's a fantastic feeling so let's close with your fun and i didn't ask you what your fantastic watch connection collection is but i will do that offline <laughs> so thank, thank you so much for joining us in this episode I, i really had a lot of pleasure discussing with you um, and to our listeners, uh, if you want to learn more about the Swiss um, watch industry specifically, in Switzerland, we have uh, our Deloitte watch study, uh, where the link will be um, in the show notes. I'm Corinne Segedi. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you so much, Tim, for being with me today. Thank you for having me. And um, I'm. it's also one of the highlights uh, of the year to, to read the new report from you. I, uh, it's, it's really one of my favorite reports. And uh, thank you for doing this for the industry. Thank you for listening to Luxury On Air with Karine Segeti and Felicitas Morhart. This podcast is provided to you by Deloitte Switzerland and the Swiss Center for Luxury Research. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a five-star review. If you're keen to stay up to date on what's trending in the luxury industry, don't forget to subscribe. As always, you can find more information about the current episode in the show notes. We wish you all the best. Until next time.